You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Days and convicted. Blue party radio. Show King. The devil's advocate. The projection booth. Awful flips. Pod Awful. Net. Net. Support for the Projection Booth Podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found on the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. going to be party to an attempt to kill a man. This is the asphalt jungle. This is New York City with its fancy women and fancy hoodlums. With its very special beat. Its very special places. Its hunters and hunted. And you will walk side by side with Frankie Bono as he stalks his prey, knowing what is in his mind, feeling what is in his heart. And your hands will sweat with his fear. Your pulse will pound with his desire. Frankie, no! No! You're gonna have to be game, Frank. Hey, you're gonna have to pay luxury prices, boy. I'll pay you nothing. And even as he prepares to unleash his blast of silence, you will discover that you and Frankie Bono are playing the most dangerous game in the world. signal it's that podcast you love to hate the projection booth watch it i'm your host mike white and here is my co-host the man with hate in his eye mr rob st mary will you do the voiceover for my entire life mr white i would love to do that and this one born in darkness mr howard rodman well actually born in bedford stuyvesant but there are some who would say there's not much difference All right, relax. Your hands are cold again, even in gloves. We're talking about Blast of Silence, the 1961 film from Alan Barron, which tells the story of bad boy Frankie Bono, a button man in from Cleveland, visiting the Big Apple at Christmas to kill Troiano, a hood with a mustache to hide the fact that he has lips like a woman. We follow Frankie as he reconnects with his old business associates like Ralphie and his rats, and old acquaintances like Lori. Get your hands hot and ready to talk about this slice of New York in the early 60s, told through the grimy lens of crime. So Howard, as our guest, when was the first time you experienced Blast of Silence, and what was your initial impression? 
I had heard about Blast of Silence vaguely for a while. I'd heard about it both as a kind of one of those cult films that I really should make time to see one of these days but never quite got around to. That's a basket which is very, very, very large. And then uh, I'd also heard about it from some of my friends in the New York production community. When I was young, my mom uh, reinvented herself by going to NYU Film School in the, in the early 60s and came out of it a script supervisor. So she worked on commercials and industrial films and the occasional feature in New York. And at that time, the New York production community below the line was a bunch of fiercely loyal unionists who lived in New Jersey and wore sleeveless T-shirts. And they all uh, looked like they would beat somebody like me up at the slightest provocation. But in fact, because they were friends with my mom, they did the next best thing, which was to hire me. So I worked doing sound and being uh, one of the gaffers on numerous uh, hilarious small commercials. And after uh, we were finished at night, we would all go for a drink and people would talk about the most fun shoot they'd ever been on, the weirdest shoot they'd ever been on. Those kinds of stories would come tumbling out. The later, the more they, t- the more graphic they would be. And Blast of Silence was one of those films that people seemed to remember. So even before I knew what it was, I knew that it was. And I ran into it finally, or Blast of Silence and me finally collided at NoirCon in Philadelphia. I'm not sure whether at that point it had become NoirCon or was still Goodest Con. But at any rate, the great and good Lou Boxer, noir aficionado by day, anesthesiologist by night, or is it the other way around? Uh, I think under the, uh, with the assistance of and under the auspices of that wonderful noir preservationist, Eddie Muller, we of Noir Con or Goodest Con or Goodest Con Noir Con filed into the theater. I think most of us hadn't seen the film. None of us who hadn't seen the film knew quite what to expect. And I was dutifully paying my respect to a film that I'd heard about for a while and expected would probably be okay. But it was not okay. Uh, It was extraordinary. I sat there thinking in that kind of horrible sort of culty way, How could a film so extraordinary have escaped my gaze for so long? But then I also thought, wow. So I sat there. I mean, it's not a particularly long film. I think it's, what, 78 minutes, something like that. But when I came out, I felt very much like the first time I'd seen many sort of small, weird films that had changed my life. And the more I thought about it, the more its hooks got into me rather than the opposite. So actually, when I revisited it this week in preparation for this show, I was surprised by how much I'd remembered and surprised by how much more there was to like than I'd picked up on the first time. I also saw it at Cinadelphia. I was at that screening with you, and Lou even had me, I don't know why, but had me introduce Eddie Muller, which, who then introduced the film, so that was kind of a weird thing there. But yeah, that was wonderful to see on the big screen. I had tracked it down a few years prior when it was released in France on DVD. It's like Bad Boy Frankie, I think it was called. <laughs> 
And that was only because it had been floating around the bootleg circuit on VHS for years and years, and just it looked horrible. So I tried to watch it one time before, and then when it came out on DVD, I said, okay, I'm going to spend the money, get the DVD. And uh, it was kind of fortuitous because then I was asked to introduce Eddie, so I'm like, well, I should probably know what this movie is <laughs> before I do that. Bonjour, je, je voudrais introduire uh, Frankie Le Mauvais. So I uh, saw it that way, and yeah, like you, I was blown away. And then seeing it in a theater with an audience, especially an audience filled with uh, rabid noir hounds, as it were, was a wonderful experience. So how about you, Rob? When was the first time you saw Blast of Silence? I have to say I hadn't heard of it or saw it until you told me to watch it for this episode. And I feel like I missed out once again. And something that I should have saw years ago. So <laughs> there you go. But hey, you've seen it now, though. It's kind of like Howard was saying that, you know, it's one of those where it's like, where have you been all my life kind of things. Yeah. And it for me, and we'll get into this in a bit, it's sort of an interesting film because of the fact that it is American, but it doesn't necessarily feel American <laughs> in certain respects. So. But it's uh, it's an interesting film, and I really like it. And uh, the the fact that it is scrappy and low budget just sort of I think adds to the appeal. It is very scrappy. It is very low budget, and there are times where there's a voiceover that goes throughout almost the entire film. There are dialogue sometimes, scenes sometimes. Yeah, voiceover. This movie you could just take the soundtrack out and put it on as a radio play. I think that this thing. Is um, I I understand the appeal of voiceover, but I think the voiceover is a bit too much in this movie at times. Your hands are hot, remembering the hot, sweaty hands of the mother superior holding you. Watch it, danger signal. And now you catch it. Another bad moment of all crummy times. The familiar face out of the past. Good old Pete from the orphanage. It has to happen now and then. You can handle it. But why now? You feel hot. Like they were crowding in and pushing you. Who? Anyone. Everyone. Pete. You hate the type. You'd like to push his loud mouth in. You smile. You're polite. You don't even hear the words. Yak, yak, yak like a parrot. Then he's reminding you. There was a girl. His sister. Lori. You don't usually remember names, especially women's names. But Lori, there was something special there. It's almost to the point of parody. He would have toned it back just a little bit. I think it would have been a richer experience. But considering it's his first film and, you know, this is what he was trying to do in 1961, I can't really fault him. But to me, it just it's it was just it got kind of ridiculous. It's either that or I'm looking at it through the lens of 50 years on. There are many things I find interesting about the voiceover. Uh, one is that it is both spoken by and written by uh, two blacklisted folk. Uh, the voice itself is Lionel Stander, who's a wonderful actor, You know, was one of those people who fell under the shade of the Hollywood blacklist. And the narration, the credits say, was written by Mel Davenport. But uh, there is no Mel Davenport. There's only Waldo Salt, the screenwriter, who you may know from such things as coming home. You may know him from uh, Midnight Cowboy. I mean, he's one of the great American screenwriters, and clearly he was letting his noir flag fly here. And I've often wondered whether what the relationship was between Alan Barron and Waldo Salt, whether Barron said, here's the tone I'm aiming for and gave Salt free reign, or 
how that collaboration worked. Neither of them really talks about it. Salt doesn't talk about it in the documentary about his own life that was done for American Masters. And Alan Barron certainly doesn't talk about it in his autobiography. So that's, as, the, as Andrew Saris used to say, a subject for further research. I'm also interested, as I think you guys are, in the fact that the narration is in the second person. It's addressed to you. Watching it this time, the first thing I was reminded of was um, Jay McInerney's Bright Lights, Big City. But the more I sort of racked my brain and racked my library shelf, there are all kinds of literary antecedents for, for that kind of use of the second person. Camus, Boutour, Duras, Perec. Many, many continental classy writers wrote stories or even novels in the second person. And of course, I was put in mind of the Beatles song for no one. You know, your day breaks, your mind aches. You find that all her words of kindness linger on when she no longer needs you. And in sort of looking at the Duras, the, the Boutour, the Beatles, for reasons that I don't understand, the second person seems a kind of mode of narration particularly suited for melancholy. And I think that part of it is really heightened here. Once you get past what are, I think, uh, as you rightfully noted, uh, the kind of uh, <laughs> excesses of it. You like it that way. It feels rather purple. If it's not purple, it's at least somewhere on that end of the uh, the color spectrum. We're, we're into the violets, at least. In that. <laughs> you say purple like that's a bad thing. No, no, not necessarily. In fact, that's what I always remember from this film, is that voiceover and that intensity that Standard delivers it with. Folks that are listening might not know Standard by his name, but they definitely will remember him as also being a very famous narrator when it comes to the beginning of Heart to Heart. This is my boss, Jonathan Hart, a self-made millionaire. He's quite a guy. This is Mrs. H. She's gorgeous. She's one lady who knows how to take care of herself. By the way, my name is Max. I take care of both of them, which ain't easy. Because when they met, it was murder. Of course, watching this second after having lived through heart to heart for all these years, I kept waiting for a standard to say, She's gorgeous. <laughs> Without the voiceover, I won't say it's a standard story, but it's very much a very simple story of a hitman coming to town. He's got one job to kill this Troiano character. He's got some complications that come up from trying to get his gun, trying to keep his business his business, running into an old friend and an old love interest. And we have just these kind of you know smaller stories that are going on within this larger story, and I think it's the voiceover that really kind of elevates it. Like I was saying before, the voiceover is is yeah, it's almost a hundred percent there, but there are moments of dialogue in the film, and it felt like I don't remember who was comparing this to a foreign film, but it felt almost like things that people have done to foreign films where they've 
said, okay, I'm going to buy this movie from China or wherever, and I'm just going to record a voiceover, and that's going to explain everything that's going on in the film as kind of a simple way of almost not paying for dubbing. You just hire one guy who's going to narrate everything. And that's what I was reminded of quite a bit as I was watching it. No, there are times in its purpleness and over the topness. It's like 75% of the way to what's up tiger Lily. The reason why I said that it reminded me of foreign film is that it's amazing to me how much the film plays within sort of the French new wave. And what I mean by that is it's not as crazy as where Godar goes with something like, you know, band apart or something like that. But it really does sort of feel like breathless and things like that. But when you see the documentary with Baron, he said he had no idea that that was going on because that was at the same time that he was making his film. And in a way, it's kind of interesting how he could be doing that in New York. They're doing that in Paris and Tonally, there's certain kind of tone ideas, certain sort of, you know, camera voiceover that seems similar. So I don't think you can really put Blast of Silence into a um, into the context of a standard noir, meaning, you know, the noir that we know from the 30s and 40s, because there's a lot of people that would say, okay, the last quote unquote noir was Touch of Evil, and that was 59, and then after that, it becomes recontextualized through the French and the Europeans, and then it gets shipped back to America. We kind of rediscover it and do our own thing with it again. It's not really in that classic period in that way, and it's much too sort of street-oriented, and I think that might be another reason why I, I, I sort of felt that it was more of akin to something like Breathless, because like... Godard uses uh, Paris as a character. I think that New York really is a character in this film as well. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that New York is used in this film absolutely in the way that Paris is used in, in Breathless. I mean, you know, there's the Apollo Theater. There's the Village Gate. There's Rockefeller Center. To my mind, the most affecting parts of the film are the parts where there's two people walking, one is following another, and you get to see the storefronts of Midtown Manhattan. And you're saying, oh my God, this is a world that almost is our world, but it is almost like a foreign country or even another planet. There's a shot in there, which I think is just astonishing. It's the shot where after he has killed Troiano, it's a shot on on 34th Street between Lexington and Park. He's a little man very, very far away, and he walks toward the camera and toward the camera, like Omar Sharif entering Lawrence of Arabia. As I was watching it, I I reran it and timed it. It's a minute and five seconds. I mean, think of this. In a 77-minute movie, he spends one minute and five seconds just watching a guy coming toward you. I mean, if that isn't something that could have been out of Godard, Truffaut, Chabrol, what part of his butt did he pull that out of? It's extraordinary. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that, that the kind of very naturalistic, practical locations, which are reminiscent of actually, in a funny way, the kind of gritty, sort of almost neorealist television that was being shot in New York at that time, East Side, West Side, Naked City, but elevated from that sort of kind of kitchen sink naturalism by that doomstruck narration. If you want a woman, buy one in the dark so she won't remember your face and the kind of drum beating you in the head till you hate the taste on your tongue. (laughs) (laughs) For the first time in your life, you don't want to be alone. 
a killer who doesn't kill gets killed. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's loopy, that's delirious, it's purple beyond belief, but somehow you take that kind of really doomstruck, almost exaggeratedly eat nickels and spit dimes narration, and you lay it over this naturalistic portrait of vanishing or vanished New York, and something magical happens. Roller skates, bike, sled, games, nothing like that. Something bigger, more important, something special. That shot that you're talking about is amazing, especially with that music going over it. I don't think there's narration at that point, but it's just the score, the uh, Meyer Kupferman jazz score, which is almost another character unto itself if we're talking about characters in the film, because it is, again, ever-present and changes quite a bit as we're going through, but it always seems to really fit the mood of what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's I mean, I think... He was really fortunate in the choice of his collaborators. His account of it is, oh, I scammed an office from this guy, and I scammed some money from that guy, and we got some money from that person. And just as a kind of interesting footnote, one of the major producers of the film, Dan Enright, isn't listed on IMDb, perhaps because people recall that Dan Enright is also the producer of Tic-Tac-Doe and 21 and fell under the large penumbra of the quiz show scandals. <laughs> in fact, uh, I think the only show that Dan Enright did on television in that era that wasn't fixed was Winky Dink and You, which I think of as the first interactive media experience. Do you know this show? No. What was that one? Well, if you were of a certain age, and I am, there was this show on Saturday morning called Winky Dink and You. And Winky Dink was a star-shaped figure, sort of cartoonish with a little smile, who would get involved in all kinds of predicament. And separately, you would buy a sort of piece of thick plastic, kind of like a, a um, piece of saran wrap, but thicker and with more static electric properties, and put it over your TV screen, and you had a yellow crayon. And they would say, Winky is being chased by bandits. Can he get across the abyss? No, he can't. Boy, it would be great if he had a bridge. And you would take your yellow crayon, and you would draw a bridge across the abyss, and Winky Dink would walk across it. As a child, I was enthralled by this, until the day when I couldn't find the screen. I was about to put my crayon on the TV screen itself. My mother saw what I was about to do and fearing for her largest investment, took the crayon from my hand at the instant of need and Winky Dink walked across thin air to the other side of the abyss without my assistance. And I think it was at that moment that I knew the game was fixed. And to the extent that I doubt authority, to the extent that I dabble in deconstruction, to the extent that I am the person I am, I think it all really started the day that Dan Enright's Winky Dink and You taught me that even without my divine intervention, things went on anyway. You were kind of hood Winky Dinked. <laughs> oh dear, yes! <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, the man who brought you that and who brought you Tic-Tac-Toe and 21, the fixed quiz shows, also uncredited by IMDb, brought you this. There's also the uncredited Sidney Beckerman. I mean, is there a better name for a kind of questionable Hollywood? But he also went on to do things like Buckaroo Banzai and Cabaret. So, I mean, he was a Hollywood Wheeler dealer, to be sure. But if you read between the lines of Alan Barron's autobiography, the financing of this film was, let's just say, sketchy enough so that some people aren't credited on the film and some people aren't credited on IMDb. His autobiography is very interesting that it's called Blast of Silence, named for this uh, freshman directorial effort. And I think he gives, what, like one chapter to it? Yeah. So not very much. <laughs> yeah. But if you had the life that Alan Barron had, you would give one chapter to it, too. Tell me what I'm leaving out, okay? Alan Barron grew up tough in East New York, stole things, got into the Coast Guard, got into huge brawls, jumped ship in Le Havre, worked on the Manhattan Project as a small part of the development of the atomic bomb, was a Borscht Belt waiter, illustrated comic books for a living, worked in an aircraft factory, drove a taxi, studied acting with Maris Karnovsky, killed birds at the urging of the mafia, fainted, fell in love with his 18-year-old model, almost fucked Errol Flynn's secretary, but ended up instead with a Playboy bunny, went to the sex clubs of post-Batista Havana, just like in Godfather 2, was a contract director at Fox, watched Tippi Hedren feed a lion cub, hung out in lesbian after-hours dives in Paris, made a really good movie, made some really bad movies, directed television in India, directed Charlie's Angels and The Love Boat, did Primal Scream with Arthur Janov, was turned on to acid by Patricia Mellon Hitchcock and Timothy Leary, shot a man by accident, smuggled a 35mm camera and a Cadillac out of Cuba under the vengeful eyes of the Cuban police and a very jealous husband, fucked many men's wives, served as Inger Stevens' beard and then fucked her too, fucked a woman whose name he can't remember, did cocaine, went to a sex commune in the Santa Monica Mountains and had a stroke. In that kind of life, we're lucky that Blast of Silence is a footnote. <laughs> You know, you know what I call that? I call that a Thursday. <laughs> I was about to call it the aristocrats. <laughs> Didn't he also shoot a man in Reno just to watch him die? No, that was his brother. Okay. Quite a life. Quite an amazing life. And quite a character. I had the pleasure of speaking to Mr. Barron uh, and interviewed him uh, a little while back. And um, normally on the show, as as listeners probably know, I both Rob and I, we tend to cut out the ums and the uhs and the uncomfortable pauses and any of those kind of things. This one, uh, folks, we're just going to let run. We're just going to play the interview in whole so you can get the, the total experience that I got when I spoke to Mr. Barron. It is... Um, quite a fun time. So we will be back with that interview after these very important messages. Hey, this is Little Mel, host of No Boundaries. No Boundaries is a podcast put out every Monday where I discuss issues pertaining to lifestyle, social, cultural, and alternative topics, plus much more. I also interview some pretty awesome people ranging from fetish models to feminist icons. Be sure to check out all my episodes and upcoming episodes at www.noboundariespodcast.com. If you have a topic suggestion or you want to be a guest on the show, please email me at noboundariespodcast, the number four, at gmail.com. No Boundaries. Get real, get raw, get sexy. Mwah. 
It's the Dave Only Women's Social Club. It's not on my phone. Well, he I'll tell you that. It's not on, on fucking my phone. My phone. Now, the ball uh, was in you your should've... court. No, I fucking sent you a text back. You yeah, but I never got prick. it. What do you want me to tell you? I never and got you it. You call to confirm. God, aren't you tired of this NPR feel-good radio wishy-washy, everyone learns something and feels great about it crap? Not me. I get ones that want to fuck up their ass, and I like to do that. What I present to you is chaos. And I get ones that want to be slapped around a bit, and I do that too. And you will laugh. It's a comedy show. It's a comedy show where you will actually laugh. I would love to lick your pony vagina. It's a very costly women's social club. All right, well, to be blunt with you, I'm thinking that we should contact the police because it sounds like you have some really nasty situation going on. I'm sorry? We want to pray that two people we don't like get cancer. Why would you pray for someone to get cancer? Because we don't like So if you hate podcasts and you're sick of all the shit that's out there, listen to my show, The Bi-Quarterly Women's Social Club. I'm the host, Chris Wilding. Facebook.com slash bi-quarterly or bqwsc.com where you can find out everything about us, listen to episodes, and get our live show schedule. Hope to see you there. Seacrest out. Have a good night, motherfucker. <laughs> it's the Daily Grindhouse Podcast. I got your boy hanging. You no business bond insecure junkyard mother. Starring Dr. Freaks. Am I the only one who is concerned about the naked woman tied to a bed? Johnny A-Bomb. I put out the trash. Joe Cosby. Softcore picture? You just said softcore picture. And Warhawk Tanzania as Warhawk Tanzania. You do not come to my turf talking about busting ass. When it comes to cinema, we talk the cream of the crop while scraping the bottom of the barrel. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Facebook, and of course, on DailyGrindhouse.com. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast. Because you deserve it. Hey, it's Mike White. How are you doing tonight? Hi. All right. Good to hear from you. Thank you so much for taking my call. I really appreciate it. Now, Mike, are you doing this for a book, did you say? Uh, for a podcast. We're for doing a, an, uh, a podcast is like an internet radio show. Oh, I see. Yeah. Each week we pick a movie that we enjoy and talk about it, uh, kind of break it down for folks to let them know what it is why we enjoy it, kind of put it into historical context, that kind of stuff. And when we can, we try to talk to folks involved with it. So going right to the source here. Okay. Where, mother, where, what, is it on radio, did you say, or television or what? Uh, it's available via the Internet. Oh, I see. Um, okay. Yeah, folks download it to their phone or listen to it while they're online, that kind of stuff. Yep. All right. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fun. We try to make it kind of like an old-time radio show when we can. Good. Yep. Okay, well, let's proceed. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I read your reread your book recently, and I read it before, and I have to say it's fantastic. What kind of motivated you to decide to write your memoir at this time? Well, what motivated me is, is uh, looking, I mean, like getting to be the age I am, and looking back, and I realized how many interesting things uh, uh, I had experienced. And I thought, 
because I had a fairly good memory of those things, I decided to do that. And having done it, I felt, well, it was great. It's great from my point of view because uh, it was uh, as if I suddenly had taken a, well, you know, like you take a self-picture with an iPod. Uh, this was suddenly having a snapshot of my life in a very small book. And uh, it's... it's uh, uh, it's not something that everybody does, uh, but I must say it's rewarding in that it was a composite of who I was and what I did and all compiled into one tome. How was it kind of going back and, and looking back at your career? Well, it was something interesting. I mean, I was sad and I, I mean, I, while doing it, I, I, I laughed and, and teared up a couple of times thinking about certain things, beginning with my childhood and so on. And, uh, uh, but it was, uh, it was like eating a very full, maybe it's a crude way to put it, but it was like eating a, a meal that was very satisfying. Uh, and, uh, well, having a very satisfying experience because it was so filled, so full of, of, of things as I depicted. Now, I, you know, you named it Blast of Silence, which obviously was kind of your first forays into the industry, though you'd done stuff before that. I found the, the stories about Cuba absolutely fascinating. Yeah, all, all uh, very true. I mean, a short version of it, but I, I put uh, most of the salient facts are exactly as they took place. It sounds like it was quite a time, especially with all of the uh, partner swapping going on down there. What do you mean by partner swapping? All the the love affairs and who was sleeping with who. Well, I don't even know what you're referring to. I mean, um, who who specifically are you talking about? You say oh, partners? I'm, I'm just, not sure I understand what you're asking. Oh, just um, Errol Flynn and and uh, and well, his. Was, uh, not partners. It was uh, he wasn't swapping with anyone. He had a girlfriend. Right, but but he was uh, wasn't he covering for you or um, I'm trying to remember what no. the story was? You you no. were going out with the one girl and no. that didn't quite he, work no, no, out. No, 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 my friend, excuse me. No, he wasn't no problem. covering for me. No, I don't know where you got that, but you're wrong. No, there was no such thing. I mean, he I was with him. And I spent time with him, but it had nothing to do with uh, uh, my affairs or anything of that nature. And even I. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'd like to straighten that out in terms of your impression of what you, you read. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, there was some but, sexual escapades that I depicted involved me, but uh, I don't know why we should talk about par- partner sharing. I mean, that, that was nonsense. I, I guess mean, it was the the one girl who had a boyfriend, and you were very afraid that... Um, he was going to kind of uh, that whole the thing where he was going to try to come after you because he was so jealous. Well, you know, you said you read it two times. I've got to, with all due respect, let me straighten you out. Okay. She was a married young woman who was doing a show for me, and I explained in great deal how that took place. And it turns out her husband was uh, who was. I don't even feel like explaining it now because his was involved with the mafia because his father ran a gambling casino down there. But there was no partner exchanges. You're twisting the facts, and I and I, I must say I, I uh, I'm a little concerned about the way your your what your impression of what it was. 
I mean, I'm, I'm really I, asking that you get things straight if you're going to talk about it. Certainly, certainly. I'm sorry, sir. I was curious, once you came back to the United States, how did you kind of get the idea that you were going to make Blast of Silence? What was, uh, what kind of said... I decided to make a film, yes. I explained mm-hmm. that in the book. Uh, having had that early experience working with this uh, producer who was really pretty inept, but nevertheless he was working with 35mm film, and it was my first experience more or less with that sort of a thing, and I saw how the possibilities of how it could be done. So I decided to make my own film. Now, how did you get involved with uh, Waldo Salt on that? How did I get it? I wanted to, <laughs> to, to somebody I knew and so on, and, and I thought he'd be interested. It would be interesting to see what he could do in terms of uh, writing a narration. And I worked together with him on it. He was very good, very talented man. Now, was this the first time that you had tried to to write a film, a, a full feature? Yes, it was. How did you guys divide the work when it came to how you're going to put this together? What guys are you talking about now? Sorry, you and Waldo Salt. Waldo didn't help write the movie. Oh, okay. You, you know, uh, for some reason, you know, I'm, I must say I'm I'm a little put put off by the, your your lack of understanding of what 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 is in the book because you you the facts they're presenting to me are just not correct. Well, I, I'm glad that I'm talking to you though. You can straighten me out. Which yeah, well, is good. I mean, if you're going to read the book, I would hope you and then you're going to ask me questions, but you're asking me questions on facts that were not were not the facts. So it's very difficult to to respond. Sorry, I thought that I had read that he wrote the narration part of it. Well, the, the, the narration had nothing to do with the entire film. Okay. Did, did he kind of come in afterwards and write that? Yeah, after I... Uh, well, yeah, after I... Uh, pretty much after I'd shot the uh, footage, yes. Okay. And when it came to that, um, to some of the actors that you used in that, how did you find the, the folks that you worked with, like uh, Molly McCarthy or Larry Tucker? I knew them. <laughs> I knew Larry and, uh, and so on. And uh, when I was looking around, there were ways to, it was in New York City. And when I was looking for an actress, I, I looked for, through several people and so on. And, and that's how it happened. How did you, you and Larry Tucker meet? How did we meet? I can't remember that, but I knew him. Mm-hmm. He is so good in the in the film. He just yeah, he'd never every scene before. he's in. Yeah, he'd never acted before either. Wow. Mm. Now, was he was more of a writer, wasn't he? No, he eventually did some writing, but prior to that, no, he did no writing. What he, what was he up to at the time? Various things, but he was unemployed and he managed some. Uh, I was involved assorted things, but he really was un- unemployed. Nothing specific that I can recall. Okay. Yeah, the I love the chemistry between you guys, and just you know that you had the the guts. Well, I guess you kind of didn't really have a choice uh, to play the main character yourself. That was uh, quite a brave thing that you did, and and you were terrific at well, it. Like you said, I had no choice at the time, and worked with whatever I had to get it done. No money, no anything, and so on, but managed to do it in spite of all of the adversity. I was curious, how did you get Lionel Stander um, to do the voiceover? Well, you know, New York's, where, where do you live, by the way? Uh, over in Detroit. All right. 
well, New York City was a very active place, and and uh, you were, you had contact, uh, you were, you were able to access the whole world. And New York City at the time was a very special place. And in order for when I was looking for something, I, it was it was not difficult to find. It's especially people. It was intimate that way. At the time, I'm trying to remember, with 1960 when you were making this, was the uh, blacklist still really in effect, or had that kind of period passed over? It was, it was, it was passing over, not completely, but it was, yeah, it was, it was just rapidly dying, but it was still there. Right, right, because yeah, it, it's, he, um, the use of, of him and, and uh, salt and everything is just it's such a nice kind of nod, you know, to that um, kind of outlaw yeah. mystique that you have. Wow. I, the the music in it is so good. How did you um, get I Meyer Kupferberg? Meyer Kupferberg, I forget how I met him too long ago. But, mm-hmm. but uh, he was a very talented man. I was glad I did meet him and uh, had him do the music, yes. Yeah, it's such a wonderful score. It is. I agree. I was curious. Uh, uh, can you, um, you know, obviously I, I've read the book, but my listeners have it. Can you talk a little bit about the whole, um, what happened after you were done shooting it? What happened to the film? Well, I think I described it in great detail in the book. I was just, um, yeah, okay. Um, I, sorry, I'm I'm trying to... Uh, uh, Think of a better way to ask Briefly, that. Universal, uh, uh, one of the people involved with putting up some money for it, the few people that I met, uh, knew uh, somebody who worked for Universal, and uh, he, unfortunately, he quickly showed Universal, and then I made a very bad deal, but I was very innocent at the time, and uh, so they bought it uh, for, the, uh, ad, for the United States. Eventually, I got back the European rights, which I still own, and uh, I, but the... Uh, you know, unfortunately, they have it, and the, the money being made on the, the release now is—I don't make a nickel on it because uh, Universal robbed me on it. What can I say? You know, they put—they put a clause in saying they own the film in perpetuity, and uh, uh, that's the way it goes. Oh man, it still hurts just to hear that. <laughs> yeah, well, it does. Fortunately, I mean, if, I, if I were in worse shape financially, it would really hurt. But thank God. You know, it, it's, of course, it's annoying, but what can you do? I can't dwell on it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Did that? Did Blast of Silence in any way help you get uh, your next film, or did you just kind of no, have to pick yourself up? No, I. That I, I managed to scrape that up uh, and uh, do that, but I think I explained that in great detail too. Uh, uh, no, it didn't. I, nobody came and offered me anything. I had to dig that out of the. Uh, Atmosphere, so to speak. I did go to I, I did go to Europe, to Warner Brothers and did some work for them. I did a couple of shows, and it was my official acting job. And joined the Directors Guild, and then came back to and to the second film, and um, and then I explained in detail how I got, I turned down the first office on that, which I'm sorry about, and then uh, it's actually too complicated to go through. But as I said, it's all in the book terms of how uh, I lost control of the film, and uh, then they changed the title and so on, and it went into oblivion. Even though it got a couple of nice reviews with a, an initial release, 
But I, if I had to do over again, I never should have done that. I'm sorry, I should have accepted the first offer, which was some allied artists. But, you know, looking back, uh, you can make a perfect life. Right, no right. Mistakes. What was it like working with Roscoe Lee Brown on that one? Oh, Roscoe was a friend. He was terrific. You know, Roscoe was a friend of mine. He was, he, I, I liked him very much. He was terrific. Very, very talented man and very bright. And so it was a pleasure. I was, he, since he was a friend, it was terrific to work with him. And, oh, that's uh, but, great. Yeah, he was very good. And a good deal of what he did, he, he improvised, which was very clever. His speech that he makes is a wild man, you know. That was all improvised? A good deal of it, yeah. What he did, oh, yeah. Wow. He was very good at that, yeah. Oh, that was so good. I was curious, was there a lot of impro- improvisation on Blast of no, Silence? Or no, no. Did, we okay. Okay. Yeah, I was curious, you know, with that being, you know, your first, what uh, what kind of lessons you learned from that one? Well, that's a hard one to answer. I mean, I, I, I naturally, I, I learned more about filmmaking as I did on my second film. And each thing I did, I subsequently was that much smarter. I mean, if I could do it all over again, it would be, uh, you know, I'm certainly far more cinematically intelligent than I was then. Uh, but I, I was just getting, you know, I was just learning. And I made mm-hmm. whatever mistakes I made, I didn't make a second time. But it was a whole learning experience. Yeah, you did such wonderful work on Kolchak, the Night Stalker. I just wanted to... to Thank you for doing such a, uh, you know, just, I love that show and, and the episodes that you directed specifically. Yeah, it, was, it was fun to do. I must say, I enjoyed doing the show because of the kind of things I was asked to do, <clears throat> particularly. Uh, and I was able to use a lot of imag- imagination with some of those shows. That, the cold check and also the Sixth Sense uh, at uh, Universal. Because yeah, I did a lot of things there I can never I never did on film, but I really enjoyed it. A lot of tricky things. It was, it was very enjoyable to work on that. It was very well, rewarding. It seems, it seems like a lot of those... I'm uh, sorry. Okay. It seems like a lot of the, the TV shows were almost like mini-movies in, uh, unto themselves. Well, the technique was exactly the same. You just did, mm-hmm. you just did them faster. But uh, in those days, it was all 35-millimeter film and same cameras and same crews and everything else. So they really were like brother and sister. Uh, yeah, that, it, it, I imagine, what, what, was, what was like the turnaround time for something like that, like a Sixth Sense or a... a kind of film that it was. I mean, uh, for instance, uh, a, a one-hour show usually had about... Uh, Oh, I don't know, a week or seven days or something like that to prepare, and then an additional six or seven days, unless it went over to eight days, to do a one-hour show, which is very quick compared to the way people were shooting film in those days. I mean, I would mm-hmm. shoot six to ten pages in a day, and in a motion picture, they were doing one page a day or two pages a day, so you can see the difference. Oh, Yeah. I was curious, what's been the reaction to the book? How's how's it been received? Well, frankly, uh, I I wrote it in a hurry, and uh, the reaction from I mean those who, who I know and uh, 
give me a very nice reaction. But as far as the press, I didn't get uh, I didn't get much press on it. And I frankly, I I think it's because the uh, my I don't know my writing skills in it were not that pro- prolific, and uh, uh, so uh, I I don't think it got much uh, attention. Tell me more about the the folks that put it out because I wasn't familiar with them. There's nothing to tell you. It's a small publishing outfit in New York, and that's who it is. Okay, great. I love the the picture of you on the back cover. Are you still doing a lot of painting? I was up until a few years ago, but my physical uh, illness has sort of uh, stopped me, unfortunately, because uh, that's my first love is painting, and uh, and I have a studio. I still have where I live and so on. But no, I haven't been painting in the last few years. That mm. That photo was it a painting I did, I think, three years ago or four years ago. And the I was, was so taken last July. Uh, I was so glad that you included uh, some of your comic art. That was a very impressive. Yeah, well, that was my uh, my initial jobs. I mentioned that in the book. You know, yeah, illustrating comic books. Yeah, I was I was only... I was about 21, I think, when I did that. And I, I that was exciting to me because it was a thrill to be illustrating them and then see them get published and so on. I, I really loved that. That was really quite exciting, the ones I did. The, the whole story of you going to art school kind of in private and then, you know, going to acting school and also trying to, you know, be secretive about that. I mean, it's so well, funny to me. Well, when you say secretive, do you, do you know why? I mean, I, I, you, you, I wasn't hiding from the cops or anything. No, no. But you weren't saying to your friends, hey, I'm going to go to art school. And, well, I came from a very poor neighborhood, and I didn't want them to think that it'd be pretentious. I thought they would think it's pretentious of me to do that, which right. is typical of every poor kid, uh, you'll notice. Uh, black kids are told not to act white because they speak better English. And, or they, and that's an unfortunate crime of being poor, you know, that the... Uh, Poor people and very often will keep each other down because uh, they'll refer somebody who's moving ahead as being uppity or pretentious, you know. And that was why I had initially kept it a secret, just initially when I first started both things. It just, it's, it's funny, but also a little bit sad just because you were so good at, you know, everything that you kind of put your mind towards and that you had to, like, that you felt that need to keep it a little secret, you know, wh- oh, while that, it was going that was on. Initially, that was just for the, the yeah. boys that I hung out with. That was all. Right. Was, but that was, as I say in the book, it's typical of poor. It's the the uh, the uh, unfortunate thing about being poor is that you, you know, you, you, you know, just striving, you had to hide that from, or at least I thought so. I think maybe I exaggerated it in my mind because later on I realized maybe they would not have reacted negatively, but uh, that's what I thought. You get inferiority complexes when you're very poor, you know? Right. Among other things. Yeah, I think that was the the most touching part of the book for me, was the part where you talked about getting together with some of the old friends and just that there wasn't a whole lot to talk about. Yeah, that was a a sad experience for me, too. Yeah, it was a mixed feeling, yeah. I I was looking forward to it, but then when you see people you knew when you were boys, and then you see them as Older men, it was a little depressing that experience. Yes, it was. Yeah, 
Yeah, between that and then the story you tell about kind of being amongst that you know, big Hollywood crowd and just feeling like such an outsider. There's really that kind of theme going through it. I mean, especially with, you know, you being Jewish and just having to fight your way through some of the situations. You're you're mixing things up. Mm -hmm. Being Jewish was never a problem in Hollywood. No, no, I don't imagine so. No, I mean, there was never anything like that. My Jewish thing was separate. was when I was in a service. Right. uh, Uh, in that world, but uh, no, I never, other than that, I never experienced any anti-Semitism. And then when, of course, uh, no, the, the, the main thing was in the service and the, the, during that time, there was a tremendous amount of bias in this country. And uh, uh, yeah, so I explained that in great detail. Yeah, that was very excruciating, my time in the service. And when I, I, and I had to fight uh, because once I uh, revealed that I was a Jew, uh, because I didn't, I had dark hair and my name didn't sound Jewish. And, but then, and I explained it all in great, in great detail. Oh yeah, it was a, that was a big learning experience, as painful as it was. Yeah, I'm but, sorry. Yeah, that, that, that didn't exist in Hollywood. I've never experienced any any bias of any kind in the industry. Right. I, I guess I meant, you know, you felt like an outsider because you were Jewish when you're in the army, and then you felt like an outsider when you're in Hollywood. Let me straighten out. I was in the Navy. Okay. I was, okay? Oh, sorry, yeah. sorry. When you were in the Navy. I'm, yeah. th- that's, I know that's a touchy subject. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, Never call subject, it. Never call it. Don't. Is, well, you may as well say I was in the Air Force or that I was right. a general. I mean, either they get the facts straight or not. I mean, right. there's a difference between an Army and a Navy. That's all. It's not a touchy subject. Well, I, I I know that people that are in one branch of the armed service don't like to be mixed up with others, so I'm, I'm no, very I'm, sorry. No, you definitely don't. I mean, why would you mistake anybody who's in the Army for being in the Navy or in the Air Force for being uh, something else? That's nonsense. It's not a touchy subject. It's just a fact of life. Would you right. like to be described as a, as a girl instead of a boy or a man? Or would you like to be described as a sea captain instead of whatever you do? I mean, it's the same thing. It's all. All right. Um, well, cool. Uh, where is the best f- place for folks to pick up your book? Is there... People, uh, hold on, my book is being sold on Amazon. Okay. All right, great. And um, do you have like a website or anything where folks can go to find out more information about you? Know, you? I would, it would, a thing that... Uh, I'm going to interject something now. Go for Why, it. The, the word folks in my day, was always applied to intimate people you knew. And lately, not only you, but the news people, suddenly instead of using the word people, they use the word folks. Now, do you realize that if the, the, uh, I, if the word folks is a limited word, why people avoid, and you are avoiding, you're using an iron, but you're only guilty of what everybody else is guilty of lately, of using the word folks. People, why, you, why not you to refer to people as people? Folks, I'm not sure. Term, it used to be referred to with people saying, hey, give my regards to your folks at home, an intimate kind of a thing. I mean, as mm-hmm. a, you're not only guilty of this because it's, a, it's become a very commonplace thing now. And I'm really bringing up the fact that it's, I found it quite annoying to me. And I, it started in the last few years. And people use it at a point where it's almost incorrect English. Like, for instance, I have a copy of the Constitution. You could not write, there are about 30-odd references to people in the Constitution. If you transpose that and use the word folks, 
you couldn't write the Constitution. You see what I mean? It's just, yeah. I mean, I, I don't mean to burden you with this because I know it really isn't your thing, but I just thought I'd mention it since you're using the term. You know what I mean? No, it, it's it's interesting because it's a word that I've well, used for a long time. Well, but okay. not that long a time because folks has already been in use for a few years, but instead of people. In most of my life, people were people and they were folks, which is a separate term for intimate references. But anyway, go on. I was just wondering, is there a place where people can go to find out more about you? Well, you know, I mean, there's tons of stuff about me on the web. You know, okay. under Alan Barron, under, under uh, uh, IDBM, uh, the uh, motion picture thing with all my credits in it. And there were there were dozens of sources, uh, and you just put my name in, and all kinds of stuff comes up. You know. All right. Well, cool. Well, thank you, sir, again for your time. I really do appreciate it. It's You're been a real welcome, pleasure talking and, to you. Uh, sorry for correcting you, but you know, you can. I hope you understand that if you're going to ask me about things, at least I'd like you to be referring to what actually was written, as opposed to something you're saying that had, that wasn't written. You understand? I but certainly I do. I make that clear. All right. Yep. Well, I wish you well with what you're doing. And thank, thank you, you sir. All righty. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. All he ever really wanted, all he ever wanted was a blast of silence. All he ever really wanted, all he ever wanted was a blast of silence. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. All he ever really wanted, all he ever wanted was to have a reason. All he ever really wanted, all he ever wanted was to have a signal we're back and my hands are hot i hope you had as much fun with mr baron as i did we're talking this week about alan baron's blast of silence the film went unseen for many years and was one of those films that was championed by of all people martin scorsese seeing the film the first time i was really kind of struck at how much i could see frankie bono being kind of a surrogate father for taxi drivers travis bickle did you guys see that as well or is it just me being wrong again I think there is something in the kind of self-willed solitude of the character, his insularity, that very much reminds me of Travis Bickle. He also reminds me of a much less elegant version of the character that Alain Delon plays in Le Samurai, the Jean-Pierre Melville film. He's a taciturn hitman with a code of honor, which turns out to come into conflict with 
who he is. But the Travis Bickle reference has real resonance because this is a guy who goes down the mean streets of New York and the kind of New York moonscape that Scorsese and Michael Chapman were able to render in Taxi Driver is is very very resonant with 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 the kind of uh, you know New York moonscape that that one sees here and just the image of that one lone ferociously angry man of few words roaming the streets with a silenced gun in his hand looking for some kind of vengeance some kind of absolution and some kind of escape from the professionalism of his career just sort of makes sense to me. Maybe I was swayed by his pork pie hat, but he also reminded me a lot of Lino Ventura in countless movies where Ventura as a cop or a bad guy is basically playing the same role. You know, the guy in the pork pie and the uh, single-breasted overcoat who has done a life of bad things very honorably and has now reached the point where that doesn't quite work anymore. And in another weird way, and maybe I'm just paying too much attention to the pork pie hat, he also reminded me of Popeye Doyle in The French Connection in terms of just the way he moves around New York and the kind of offhanded, oblique way he enters into each scene. I definitely saw that kind of forced solitude. But with this one, it's much more that there's this longing you know, he's he doesn't seem happy in his forced solitude. There's part of him that understands that it's a professional need, but at the same time, he wants to reach out, obviously, with the Laurie character. And then on top of that, and I don't know if I'm just reading in something into the subtext, but I almost got a feeling that he was reaching out to her because there may have been some sort of um, gay content, that there was some sort of questioning of his own sexuality in some way, that he was um, in this world of men. And either that he wants to connect with a woman to have that simple life of, you know, quote unquote family and, and all of that stuff, or that he was reaching out to her because it was like, save me from this homoerotic side of myself. I don't know if you guys caught that or not. What you're saying makes great and grand sense to me. The longing that you talked about was very, very much there. And it reminded me in a funny way of, of a, a different Scorsese film, uh, the way that uh, Robert De Niro's Johnny Boy reaches out to Amy Robinson's Teresa in, in Mean Streets. I mean, he almost doesn't know why he's doing it. He's just straining for some kind of tenderness, some kind of connection, some kind of escape from this relentless world of men and can't quite get there from here. That's a really good point. Yeah, I can I can see that as well. And that whole kind of gangster milieu that he's uh, using in that film is very reminiscent of, of what was going on in Blast of Silence. I guess the thing that why I kept going back to Taxi Driver was that line of uh, Travis Bickles about he's God's lonely man. And that's really what Frankie reminded me of as he was walking down those those city streets you know you talked about that shot of him walking for so long and just that the streets are empty at that time it reminded me of bickle when he's walking down the streets and they're filled with people but he is alone amongst the crowd it reminded me a little bit too of the fact that in a lot of movies when you kill someone see there's the second person creeping in again when you kill someone you kill someone it's over, cut to the next scene. But then in things like 
Trisha Highsmith, you kill someone and then you stay for a long time with the person who just did the killing and you realize that killing another human being is no simple matter and is never without the deepest of consequences. I think of those long tracking shots of Bruno Ganz in, in The American Friend after he's, he's done his shooting. What he does is, I mean, that shot is extraordinary, not simply as a kind of cinematic tour de force and a kind of also production tour de force. I mean, how do you get a full minute of a controlled street when you don't have a film permit and you don't have the money to close the street down? But also as a kind of piece of moral reflection. And if you take that and, you know, you put that wonderful jazz score uh, over it, it becomes meditative and almost kind of transcendent in a way. I mean, you're not looking at a hitman and the mechanics of what he has just done. You're looking at a man walking away from what may have been his last chance to keep his soul. And you know it, but even more, I think, terrifyingly, he knows it. I think your other connection as well when we talk about Taxi Driver is that jazz score. I think Taxi Driver is probably the last film that I can think of that has such a pronounced sort of direct jazz score that isn't related to something of the jazz era. I I think that's true. I mean, nowadays you get sort of, you know, marimbas rather than, you know, saxophones. I also think there's uh, more tangentially, I saw echoes of the gun seller scene in, in both Blast of Silence and Taxi Driver, the uh, initial scene with um, Larry Tucker in Blast of Silence and with Stephen Prince, the gun seller in Taxi Driver. Both of them take the kind of mechanical scene of, okay, the guy wants to kill somebody, he has to acquire a weapon. The scene, which could be a technical scene of man acquires a gun, becomes in the hands of Mr. Barron and in the hands of Mr. Scorsese, a kind of wild, emotional, loopy, almost surreal romp through the idea of what it means to buy a gun. I need a piece. Uh, that's no problem. 38 with a silencer. Oh, a silencer, that, uh, that may, uh, be a little problem. You know, I, uh, I gotta worry about a machinist, but, uh, we'll work something out, but it'll cost you. Hey, Nancy. How you doing, huh? <laughs> Look how she knows me, huh? <laughs> how you doing, sweetie? <laughs> how much? <laughs> she hasn't eaten all day. Let me get her something. Here you go. Here you go, sweetie. Hey, come on. Come on. Come on. <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah, you like that, don't you? You like that. $500, Frank. I'll give you two. Ah, oh, I'd like to help you out, Frank. But two. Come on. Come on, here you go. There's another one. I'll tell you what I'll do, Frank. $400. But that's rock bottom. And the 
geekiness and the enthusiasm and the weirdness of the transaction is foregrounded in, in both films. You got a 44 Magnum? It's an expensive weapon. That's all right, I got money. It's a real monster. Stop at a car at 100 yards, put around right through the engine block. There you go. It's a premium high resale weapon. Look at that. Look at that, that's a beauty. I could sell this gun to some jungle bunny in Harlem for 500 bucks. But I just deal high quality goods to the right people. How about that? This might be a little too big for practical purposes. In which case for you, I'd recommend 38 snub nose. Look at this. Look at that, that's a beautiful little gun. It's nickel plated, snub nose. Otherwise, the same as a service revolver. That'll stop anything that moves. Magnum, they use that in Africa for killing elephants. That 38, that's a fine gun. Some of these guns are like toys. That 38, you go out and have nails with it all day, come back and it'll cut dead center on target every time. It's got a really nice action to it, a heck of a wallop. Thinking about those two scenes back to back, the wildly flamboyant Larry Tucker, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about him later, and then the kind of really astonishing Stephen Prince in um, Taxi Driver, who was so astonishing that, that Scorsese actually made a whole separate documentary just about that one guy, the guy who played the gun seller in, in Taxi Driver. So the documentary called American Boy. So I, I think that both of those directors chose to take a kind of transactional scene that could have been just strictly mechanical and about its use value in the hands of other filmmakers and turned it into a place where they could really let fly. Larry Tucker is amazing. I love him in this and I've really have enjoyed everything that I've seen him in and what he's written. He was both a, while he was a producer, he was a writer, he was a little bit of everything. Uh, mostly known for his writing credits, um, wrote Bob and Ted and Carol and Alice, Alex in Wonderland, I Love You Alice B. Toklas. He did a little bit of the monkeys. So he was pretty plugged in in the early part of the 70s and went on to do some other stuff. And he even wrote for one of my sh favorite shows of the early 80s, Mr. Merlin. So that was, was great. But folks will remember him from showing up. Maybe they'll remember him from showing up for about three seconds at the end of Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Or more likely, they'll remember him as Pagliacci in Shot Corridor, where, again, he kind of stole the show. But every time he shows up in Blast of Silence, it is such a treat. Have some gum, because when you chew, your jaw gets tired. And when your jaw gets tired, you get tired. And when you're asleep... No one can tell a sane man from an insane man. Pagliacci in Shop Corridor. I mean, if you look at Larry Tucker, he would not, in terms of the beard, the hair, the affect, he wouldn't be out of place in Williamsburg in 2007. But this is New York in 1961. Nobody looked like that then. He was out of place, out of time. And the flamboyance of, of his performance 
in some ways almost destabilizes the movie, but in other ways really gives it a kind of jolt of much needed energy so that it doesn't become just too kind of lugubrious, meditative and Brissonian. And having him with those rats, I love that too. Just him over there teasing his rats and trying to get them. <laughs> oh my God, that that is, it, it always makes me smile whenever he's he's there. And I love the fact that he is required in this to go from kind of ditzy to slightly charming to more than slightly menacing. And he makes those turns gorgeously. You know, you don't see the seams and you don't doubt him at any point along the way. What do you guys think about Alan Barron as an actor? Alan Barron says in his autobiography that they had offered the part to Peter Falk, who was then unavailable. So he, in order to save the film, stepped in and did it himself. That strikes me as, as, um, (laughs) I I think in the, in, in, in the courtroom, they call it uh, sort of recovered memory. I suspect that, he wrote this with himself in mind for himself and that the coaxing of him into the title role was far less arduous than he depicts in the film. That having been said, I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen more than I have films that have been absolutely capsized because the director or writer director chooses to put him or herself in the lead. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. And this is not one of those cases. He clearly has some real chops as an actor, and he also has the really, really smart instinct to underplay rather than overplay. So that even when he's not being astonishing, he's creating a core of mystery rather than chewing the scenery. And it works well for him. There are a couple of places where it feels like he doesn't quite have the chops to carry it off. The scene where he's with the woman who could be his redemption and ends up having to say, you know, let me stay. I promise you I won't get rough no more. I mean, maybe that's a line nobody could really deliver well, but that's the place where it feels like he's a little out of his depth as an actor. But for most of it, I think he has the intelligence to keep quiet, to keep still, to act with his shoulders, to act with his body, to act without doing too much stuff. And in that way, you know, as a kind of New York low-rent Lino Ventura, I think he succeeds stunningly well. I think he's definitely a case study for uh, young actors on... If you don't have anything to say that can really further it, or if you think you're going to make a misstep, it's better just to shut up and give a look. And I think that, as you were saying, he basically helps to build a lot of this, and then the voiceover kind of takes over. I think that, as much as I've complained about the voiceover, the the film is called Blast of Silence, but believe me, you will never be blasted with silence in this film because of that voiceover. (laughs) If the voiceover wasn't there, I think that in some parts it would have been weaker because instead of listening to what what is going on and taking it in at the same time, we would just be forced to deal with the image. And I think if we were just forced to deal with the image, then his acting would have fallen a bit. But um, I think that when you put the two together it works really well and especially like i said just it it's better just to shut up you know give a good look or you know a proper a proper walk and that can say so much more than you opening your mouth 
Yes, but I think that in terms of the limitations of Alan Barron's talents as a writer, the limitations of his talents and abilities as a director, and the limitations of his range as an actor, each of those three Alan Barrons beautifully plays to the other side of the court, so that between the strengths of him in all three roles, you're far, far, far less conscious of the weaknesses of them than, than you would be. I mean, he really knows how to play to his strengths, both as, as a filmmaker, as a writer of films, and as an actor of them. He covers for himself brilliantly. I also think that he can push a peanut better than anybody I know. <laughs> I love that peanut-pushing scene. And, and even though I thought it was very, very underdeveloped, his relationship with Laurie, which is, in some ways, it is the stereotypical, this is a bad man, he meets a good woman, maybe her kindness, generosity, and largeness of heart can save him, but nope. You know, I think of that Sam Fuller line delivered, is it delivered by Gene Simmons in Pick Up on South Street? You know, there's something decent inside of him trying to crawl out. That's the kind of good woman that every kind of movie bad man needs. And even though, again, I think that their relationship is underdeveloped and that their scenes are sometimes a little rough around the edges, there's a kind of poignance there, not so much in their connection, but in the fact that they really can't quite reach each other. But you can imagine another better world where they did. The thing I'm amazed that we haven't brought up yet is the Christmas setting. Because I know that this has kind of become... A lot of people that have seen this film, this is kind of their favorite anti-Christmas film. <laughs> and I think the use of Christmas in here is so smart to just even further that loneliness and that distance that Frankie is feeling as he's walking along the streets of New York. And you've got the throngs of people that are out there doing their Christmas shopping. And he, again, is separated from them. Funny. Your hands are cold when you think of Christmas remembering i mean christmas is always about family and being together with loved ones and all that stuff and for him it's just one more reminder of his isolation and one more reminder of the thing that he doesn't have because he wants to reach out and wants to have that but he can't have it and it just sort of stings him once more and we hear it with the the voiceover where they talk about oh well you know that won't matter to you you know it's just a day like any other day and all this kind of stuff so it's it, it's interesting how that's used because I can't really think of another holiday that you could put against it except maybe Thanksgiving, you know, in the modern context that's so tied into family and uh, in, a, in a sense of togetherness in that way. Well, I know we'll be talking a lot more about Christmas as we talk to Keith Gordon about Mother Night because I'm always ribbing Keith about the use of Christmas in his films. And then, of course, if we do the Ice Harvest later on this year, we'll be talking about that too. But yeah, Christmas, just as a setting, I mean, we've got New York as a setting in place, but Christmas as a setting in time just always kind of exacerbates so many emotions or, or, or puts a, a different lens on the emotions, I should say. So it's it's interesting to use this. Howard, what do you see as far as – you've read his biography, obviously, unless you just made all of that uh, stuff up earlier. But having read Barron's autobiography, you know 
how his background and him being like this Jewish kid in New York and almost having to hide his ethnicity. There were times it felt like to me, or just like being ostracized because of his ethnicity. Do you think that that might've played into this whole Christmas and separation thing as well? Well, I absolutely do. I mean, I think what both of you have said about the the way Christmas is used in this. And you talked about the way New York was used as a place and the way Christmas was used as a time. And of course the conjunction of the two is in the movie, which is Rockefeller center, you know, the tree that goes up every Christmas and how sort of haunting and poignant and otherworldly, you know, to see Rockefeller center in 1961, you know, and that sort of, you know, the, the Alfred Dunhill store and, 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 you know, the glimpse of the, of the skating rink beyond and all of that. But, I do think that Alan Barron grew up a Jew in a neighborhood which was a tough neighborhood where you could get beat up for being a Jew. You could get beat up for not being Italian. You could sort of, on the basis of his last name, which is sort of kind of Italian sounding, maybe pass. His experience in the Coast Guard where when it was discovered he was a Jew, he ran into some of the most virulent and violent forms of, of anti-Semitism. I think one version of being a Jew at Christmas, the Darlene's love song, you know, Christmas time for the Jews, which is all about, you know, um, seeing movies when there are no lines and eating Chinese food. But another version of it is, you know, the entire culture is doing one thing and you're not. You've got your nose pressed to the outside of the glass of, of it. And I think that's captured very well. Many of the people in the film, if not all of them, seem to have a connected life. You know, uh, Troiano, the guy with the unfortunate anchovy mustache, has a family and also has a mistress. Uh, he's always being dragged to parties where people couple off. And he's this lone, solitary guy separated by his profession, separated by his lack of connection, and maybe even separated by his religion from all of these other folk you know, I love the Christmas season for doing that because who among us has not felt really kind of ununderstood, unknown, alone, and terrified during the Christmas season? I remember I wrote an adaptation of a Jonathan Craig story, and we set it at Christmas time in Los Angeles. One, because it was like, ha ha, Christmas in Los Angeles, what's that like, ha ha? And second, because we wanted the image of a drunken Santa Claus passed out with his face down on the bar in the middle of the afternoon. But beyond the kind of easy, cheap, sort of snarky fun we were having by setting our thing at Christmas time, we came to realize as we were shooting that setting it at Christmas added that whole other dimension because I think everybody brings with them their feelings of being exiled from the joy and bounty of the season at some point in their life. And I think there's also the kind of weird liminal state of that week between Christmas and New Year. The old is dying, but the new cannot yet be born. And a large chunk of the movie takes place in just that kind of weird dead week. The celebration is over. The presents are all opened. The parties are over. The big commencement of the next year hasn't come yet. And in between, what are you going to do? Well, you can 
kill someone. You know what that sounds like to Rob? Tuesdays, yes, Tuesdays. The other thing I was amazed by, and we often have a lot of discussion about climate change, global warming, whatever you want. This has to be the unsnowiest Christmas I've ever seen on film. It looks like it was shot in July, except for the fact that there's the tree and the people out on the skate rink and there's the Santa Claus in the window of Macy's. I mean, it just, there's no snow. There's no snow on the sidewalk. There's no like breath. It's like everything. It seems like it's 65 degrees. He says that they actually waited for uh, something like 10 days to film that final sequence uh, because it was too sunshiny and he wanted to shoot it all in on gray days and that they finally got a gray day in snow. And he describes it in the book as, as snowing fiercely, but when you watch the end scene in the film, it just looks like it's being gray fiercely. Yeah, and then the wind sound effects are laid over and they don't necessarily match that well it just seems like you know somebody going <laughs> and it's like okay yeah these are right from the audio library <laughs> but it, it still works it, it still works for me you know i think once you capture an audience's imagination in a certain way then the things that would be in in sort of lesser films laughable technical defects become just part of the built world of the film and you accept them as we said before once you kind of get past the voiceover if you can accept that you can really find yourself immersed in this film and even then there are times you know when we saw the movie um in Philadelphia, you know, there were some good laugh lines in there from the voiceover that maybe weren't necessarily intentional, but uh, it, still people were very vested in the film. Yeah, and if you really look at it, the voiceover is a little thick at times, but compare it to, say, you know, the the, the voiceover in, in Taxi Driver, which also gets a little thick at times, but I think wonderfully so, and hats off to Mr. Paul Schrader. Or the kinds of things that, you know, uh, Rorschach mumbles to himself in Watchmen. We're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. And what I'm thinking is I'm sitting here now, well, maybe this is my big break. This is my big chance. You know what I mean? You don't just walk on to a network show without experience. Now, I know it's an old hackneyed expression, but it happens to be the truth. You've got to start at the bottom. I know. That's where I am, at the bottom. That's a perfect place to start. So will you please give your warmest greetings to the newest king of comedy, Rupert Hupkin. His name is Rupert Pupkin. He lives in a world of make-believe. Oh, Jerry, I love this guy. Always coming up with these great lines. I love him. I love him. Nobody can remember his name. Mr. Pupkin. Mr. Pupnik. Mr. Puffer. Rupert Pupkin, P-U-P-K-I-N. But by 11.30 tonight... The whole world will know that Rupert Pupkin is the new king of comedy. Robert De Niro, Jerry Lewis, in a Martin Scorsese picture. The king of comedy. That's right. We're back next week to talk a little bit more about Martin Scorsese. Maybe a lot more. It's called The King of Comedy, so join us. But before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Howard Rodman, for coming on the show. Now, Howard, read recently you were appointed to the National Film Preservation Board. What exactly does that entail? 
and will you take suggestions? The National Film Preservation Board is an advisory board of some 30-odd people that reports to the Librarian of Congress and recommends to the librarian every year uh, films that should be put on the National Film Registry. In a practical sense, it doesn't do that much in, I think, a larger sense. It calls attention to certain films as being part of America's cultural heritage and basically plants the flag that says, these films are holy, these films are not for sale. And I feel very honored to be part of the group of people that chooses or helps to choose the list that gets forwarded to the Librarian of Congress so that the librarian can then decide every year what films to place on the register. And in looking over the list of previous years, I love the fact that there are some films which I think are maybe not so well known that are clearly national treasures. I think of, you know, Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep. And it's it's there. It's, you know, on, on in the National Registry. And I think of some films that are that everybody knows, like The Wizard of Oz that are on the registry. And I think I don't know what the kind of uh, politics of it are. I don't know what the lobbying of it is like, if any. The board meets annually in something like October, and I've not yet gone to my first uh, meeting yet. So I don't know really how to talk about the experience at all. But what I can say is that the opportunity in the most exaltedly geeky way to argue for films that I adore, for films that changed my life, for films that I wish more people would see is one that fills me with unhealthy mental excitement. It's called the projection booth for us. So we understand what you mean. (laughs) I think you'll find that when you join the board, that the first rule of National Film Preservation Board is that you don't talk about the National Film <laughs> Preservation Board. Well, if that's the case, then we will retroactively erase this segment of the podcast. To Rob's point, are you open to suggestion when it comes to the preservation? Because we have talked several times on the podcast about films that we think should get their time in the sun but maybe are a little too racy for America to handle being in the the National Archive. Well, you know, I don't know what, in in finer grain, what the criteria they use are, and I don't know what scares them. My guess is that some of the more extreme stuff is probably a little bit controversial. Um, For instance, just in casually perusing the lists, you know, I look, you know, I didn't see I didn't see Scorpio rising there, and that to me is like, well, you know, that's uh, you know part of America's cultural heritage, but maybe maybe a little too extreme for for stuff. And but I would certainly be happy to listen to your suggestions as long as you know one that I may not agree with them, and two that even if I did, I might be utterly powerless to do anything about it. So hit me. I would say fireworks and Scorpio rising when we talk about Kenneth Anger. Yes. But I think that there's a whole category of film that the national film preservation library of Congress, I think has either left out for political reasons or because they're uncomfortable with it or because of who financed them. And I would, and they've had a huge cultural impact 
And I would have to say that that's early 1970s adult films, specifically certain hardcore features. And I think to leave Deep Throat out of the discussion and several other films from that era is uh, to do a disservice to American culture. Uh, at the risk of getting myself booted, not only booted off the board, but booted out of my job at USC and perhaps deaccession from my position at the Writers Guild, I would have to say that regardless of the extremity of feelings about them, maybe even because of the extremity of feelings about them, you know, the work of people, you know, like Sarno and Meyer and Barbara Hammer are part of our American cultural heritage. They're very important to who we are as a people, even if you hate them, even if you can't stand them, even if you think they, the negative should be bathed in acid, you can't deny the fact that this too is part of who we are. And I thought I was going to get into hot water for suggesting Putney Swope. <laughs> yes, Putney Swope. Thank you. Yeah, you will find no argument from either of us on that one. <laughs> Senior, we need to to get his uh, his films out there. Some of them are still sort of languishing around, but Putney Swope has always been a favorite, and we did that one on the show a couple of years ago. But no, we've done a couple adult films on the show, and that's just been one category that's really bothered me. I'm just like, are they ignoring this on purpose because it's uncomfortable? Because it was mob funded? Is it you know like? But you can't deny the cultural impact that it had. You know? No. And, um, you know, I remember uh, my late wife um, was a um, film historian and film theoretician and got her Ph.D. at NYU. And even um, before she moved on from there, was uh, teaching the sort of large film history lecture class. And, um, you know, if you're teaching the large American film history lecture class, you're probably going to show Birth of a Nation. And in some ways, that's a absolutely appropriate film in an academic context. If you're talking about, um, particularly if you're talking about, uh, you know, American film in the pre-talkie era. On the other hand, it's an absolutely controversial choice. And so I think large institutions often get torn between recognizing that something really is culturally central and being afraid of the people who say, but you can't show that, you can't say that, you shouldn't show that, you shouldn't say that. And it gets to be a very, very slippery slope because some of the most extraordinary, some of, some of the most extraordinary works of art that I think anybody can name are perforce um, the most controversial. Uh, as the Surrealists used to say, beauty must be convulsive or not at all. Well, you know, what do we do with those acts of unacceptable beauty or convulsive beauty or terrifying beauty, things that are just too disruptive or maybe even too beautiful to be part of the canon? Yes. Yes. <laughs> We look forward to your advocation. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> My abdication? <laughs> yes, that too. Yeah, you, you, you mean when, when I'm run out of town by people with torches? Yeah. 
<laughs> no, it's it, it's good. You know, it, it's just interesting to talk to someone who, as you said, you you were just appointed and all of that, and, and you'll find out more as it goes. But it's interesting to talk to someone who is part of that because it is such an impressive list, and it is such an important part of you know American film culture. And and I, I it it's an honor to talk to you because you're connected to that in that way and. So thank you so much for sharing it in terms of, you know, what it means and, and what you're going to be working on and things like that. And, and uh, we, we look forward to seeing, you know, long, expansive essays in the paper about how you have, uh, you know, gone out there and pushed for uh, Kenneth Anger and Robert Downey Sr. and been run out on a rail. Uh, you'll never see that in the paper. <laughs> when, when you said it was an honor to talk to me, I recall an occasion some years back when I went to a screening of the film The Motorcycle Diaries, uh, directed by Walter Salas, written by uh, Jose Rivera. And in the lobby, uh, I ran into a friend and co-worker of mine, uh, Rodrigo Garcia, and um, he said, uh, hi, Howard, uh, I'd like you to meet my parents, Gabo and Mercedes. And before I knew what was going on, I found myself shaking hands with Rodrigo's father, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And I was terrified. I mean, my whole body was trembling. And there was this dialogue going on at like, you know, 180 miles an hour inside my head. I've got to say something to him. I have to say something to him. Everything I say is wrong. Everything I say is wrong. I, 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 I can't make a mistake here. Uh, but I don't know what to do. Uh, uh, and finally, it's it sort of like from a very, very far distance, I heard my own voice. And my own voice was saying, it's an honor to meet you. And I immediately was soaked in sweat, sweat of great and, and grand relief. And I thought, okay, that was okay. I didn't blow it. I said something appropriate. And then Rodrigo's father said something in Spanish to Rodrigo. And Rodrigo looked at me and said, my father wants to know, and not a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when somebody says it's an honor to talk to me, all I can think of is the second half of the sentence that... They, in all honesty, they couldn't bring themselves to say. Well, I will add that it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on and, and talking about Blast of Silence and all this stuff. It's just, it's just been a lot of fun. I really relish the opportunity. I mean, you know, part of how I dealt with my issues with the world was to bury my nose in books and to bury my nose in movies. And in those days before cassettes, let alone before DVDs, let alone before streaming, the act of worshipping movies was often a kind of weird, solitary activity. You would go to the failure or the Bleecker Street in the afternoon, and you would sometimes be the only person sitting in the room, or you would be one of three people, and you were seated as far apart from each other as was geometrically possible, and when the lights came up, you looked at them and thought, oh my god! You know, am I one of those? So, you know, um, whenever I get a chance to see something that in my normal daily serious life I might not otherwise see and whenever I get a chance to think about it, but I think even more sort of interestingly to figure out how best to appreciate it. I'm really grateful both in terms of my own interior architecture, but also in terms of the fact that I feel a great sense of comradeship with other people who, if not sharing identical canons, can look at a certain group of movies in a certain way and say, you know, th th those were pretty amazing. 
So thank you for including me in in part of this very fine dialogue that uh, the podcast does. Thanks again, Howard. It was an honor and a pleasure for having you on the show. And thanks to our guest, Alan Barron, for coming on this week. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you want to thank us, go on over to iTunes, leave us some stars, and spread the good word, won't you? Your day breaks, your mind aches. You find that all her words of kindness linger on when she no longer needs you. She wakes up, she makes up, she takes her time and doesn't feel she has to hurry, she no longer needs you, and in her eyes you see nothing, no sign of love behind the tears, cried for no one, a love that should have lasted years, you want her, you need her. And yet you don't believe her when she says her love is dead You think she needs you And in her eyes you see nothing No sign of love behind the tears Cried for no one A love that should have lasted years You stay home, she goes out She says that long ago she knew someone But now he's gone, she doesn't need him Your day breaks, your mind aches There will be times when all the things she said Will fill your head, you won't forget her And in her eyes you see nothing No sign of love behind the tears Cried for no one A love that should have lasted years
moves in mysterious ways, they said. Maybe he is on your side the way it all worked out. Remembering other Christmases, wishing for something, something important, something special. And this is it, baby boy Frankie Bono. You're alone now, all alone. The scream is dead. There's no pain. You're home again. Back in the cold, black silence.